Hey, it's the return of the Sound and Groove podcast, exclusively hosted by NotThePublicBroadcaster.com. And also on musicofevansmind.blogspot.com, you'll find it. We're back after a couple months hiatus here to continue the said six episodes that I promised back at the beginning of the year for this podcast that we are doing, that we've been doing for about, oh, I don't know, four years now, I'd say. Sticking at it, enjoying to impart musical wisdom on anyone out there who's uh, enthusiastic to lap it up. But anyway... This is a theme uh, for these next two episodes, the 4th and 5th of 2016, that I've uh, been having percolate in my mind for a little while. It's a strong song. There's, these are really strong tracks that uh, I think get overlooked and should be on any best of collection for a particular major artist that I will choose. Therefore, there are songs from bands and singers that you're well aware of uh, probably own some stuff of you know kind of like the big acts nothing obscure here particularly the big rock classic acts you know or pop or whatever r&b as i deem it and uh these are songs by them that i think should be among the greats so i'm still thinking of a title for it but basically it's kind of like uh they should have been you know regarded up near the top kind of songs you know what i mean because usually we have the same war horses if you see a beatles collection it's the same 20 something songs typically but let's go deeper than that, you know? Maybe a single or B-side or a deep album cut that is considered a masterpiece by the hardcore fans, by the fan base, but not by the uh, overall music community and overall pop culture. But uh, a track that I think should be. So let's start with The Birds, a great mid-60s folk rock pioneering act with the jangly guitars and all that. Roger McGuinn, mostly on lead vocals, but the harmonies provided by Gene Clark and David Crosby for a little bit while they were in the band. It's a track from 65 called It Won't Be Wrong. You never really hear it that often. You don't hear it on the radio. You see it on some collections. But those are collections that are really deep. They're kind of like double disc, you know, or they're 30-something tracks. Something that goes really extensive. This is not on, like, those smaller, essential, kind of greatest hits sort of things, and it really should be. So here's the track called It Won't Be Wrong from The Birds. Here on the one and only The Mighty Sound and Groove Podcast.
Well, there you go. It won't be wrong from the birds. Track that Jim McGuinn, uh, before he changed his first name to Roger, uh, wrote with a friend of his from his folk troubadour days. And uh, under the pseudonym The Beef Eaters, they put it out as a single in 1964. It was a straightforward, kind of more bland arrangement. They really improved on it uh, with, uh, you know, thoughts uh, and ideas of people like Terry Melcher and the guys in the band, the producer Terry Melcher. And uh, it was put in as a B-side for the single Set You Free this time, early in 1966. But uh, that Gene Clark track, and he wrote a lot of the big ones from the group when they weren't covering Dylan, uh, one of their main songwriters, was Clark, the strongest one at the time anyway. And uh, a lot of the people thought that It Won't Be Wrong was the superior track, so a lot of the time they just flipped it over the DJs, played that more. And uh, it reached number 63 in the United States. It wasn't a huge hit, though, you know, compared to what they had done the year before. Anyway, it was re-recorded in September of 65 after the 64 version had uh, kind of, you know, not overwhelmed much. And uh, it was put on their second album, Turn, 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 which came out at the end of that year. And uh, that was really the last time before the birds had all the, the you know, dissension and kind of uh, unrest settle in. Even the music stayed great. Lots of people were coming and going. Gene Clark started off uh, as the first one to depart. And then a year and a half later, it was David Crosby. Then it was Michael Clark. The drummer, but anyway, the group stayed together and tried country music and all kinds of things and persisted, I think, till 1973 or 74 when McGuinn finally decided to move on and do solo things. So, and we're going to decide to move on, but we're not doing solo things because we're going to play a song from The Clash that is a, one of their true great reggae-inspired ones. It's on the sprawling triple album Sandinista, which came out at the end of 1980, and it's kind of a political statement. It's an anti-American imperialism kind of uh, slam called Washington Bullets. But it is a, it gets it's where the Sandinista refrain that the album is named uh, from can be heard in, and uh, it's a really strong track that doesn't really get on any major collections of the Clash and doesn't get regarded by enough people outside the music community as a great Clash song. They've got plenty of amazing deep cuts too, but Washington Bullets it really strikes a resonance I'd say and uh, shows their reggae influences have really been absorbed. But anyway, let's listen to it here. Washington Bullets from 1980 by The Clash on the Sound Group podcast. Oh, mama, mama, look there. You should not play in the street again. Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there. The cocaine guns jammed downtown. The killing clowns of blood money men. The shooting goes. Washington Bullets again. Is every cell in Chile will of the tortured men Remember Allende in the days before Before the army came Please remember Victor Hara In the Santiago Stadium Ever die Those Washington bullets again And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961 Havana for the Playboy in the Cuban sun For Castro is the color is a redder than red Those Washington bullets want Castro dead For Castro is the color The bullet you spray of lead Revolution in Nicaragua There was no interference 
after an existing basketball team at the time, an NBA team called the Washington Bullets, who eventually, probably because of the connotations of, you know, assassinations and all kinds of other <laughs> negative things, changed their name to the Wizards in the mid-90s. It's not as catchy, per se. Wizards, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense compared to the Washington Bullets. It sounds a little more ominous that way. But uh, the band and Joe Strummer, who wrote the song, didn't really, uh, they didn't know about that, so it was a coincidence. It's mostly just a harsh critique of U.S. imperialism, although there are some references at the end to uh, communist states that would uh, jail and imprison uh, people who spoke out or practiced their religion or beliefs. So, I mean, the class just hated all that kind of stuff, really. The oppression uh, police, they kind of were, were uh, of music, you know what I mean? And um, that turned some people off their music a little bit, that they were outspoken and that they uh, were uh, widely espousing a socialist kind of uh, way of way of living, a way of moving for England, and thought that, hey, this is the best way to go. And so a lot of people in the in the punk world and a lot of listeners kind of were, you know, cheesed off about that a bit. But I mean, if you love the music of the Clash, you can overlook that, really. I think. Anyhow, so moving on to another track that should have been considered one of the greatest they did. It's the great Al Green, one of the definitive soul singers and probably the number one soul singer of the '70s with a uh, fantastic cut off of his 1973 album, Living For You, one of many gold or platinum-rated albums that he put out in a string of success in the early 70s. It's called Free At Last, and it's kind of, you know, taking the title of what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, said on the March on Washington in 1963, but taking that and, you know, going with a little bit of a religious angle, because, of course, Al Green, who later became an ordained minister, was deeply Christian and stuff, and eventually gravitated toward eschewing his secular music roots altogether, but at this time he was riding high as a superstar, and that was sort of just an undercurrent of things. Anyway, let's listen to Al Green from 1973 sing Free at Last. Wrapped up. 
There's a very powerful and spiritual Free at Last from Al Green in 1973. And, uh, I mean, that one right there ranks up with a lot of the tracks that are on Al Green's Greatest Hits, which is a fantastic collection, mind you, that you can get. The original one from the 70s and the expanded edition that came out recently, I think in the last 10 years, where they added more tracks to it because, you know, you can fit more on one CD now than you used to be able to. Anyhow, uh, that right there is one of many album cuts that Al Green had that really could have been a single and really could have been a, uh, a nugget in its own right. And let's move on to a guy who was pretty prolific in the 70s too, that being Bruce Springsteen. Now, in the late 70s, after the success of Born to Run, Springsteen was always touring and stuff with his E Street band. He ran into legal problems when his old manager, Mike Capel, had sued for breach of contract and all this other stuff because Springsteen had moved on to the management of John Landau, a music critic. And uh, while this was all going on, he couldn't really do anything uh, except uh, kind of write a lot of songs and rehearse a bit and tour constantly, of course. And eventually he had a plethora of songs that when he went back into the studio when the whole you know case was settled in 1977 and over the next year put out a huge amount of recording uh, material. Well, didn't release it, though. A lot of it came out on a quadruple CD box set called Tracks at the end of the 90s. But the rest of it was shelved for a later project. The rest of it was sort of, you know, held off. And in 2012 came an album, or 2010 rather, came an album by Bruce Springsteen called The Promise that was collecting a lot of the stuff from the Darkness on the Edge of Town sessions and that had, you know, not been released before. And this was a triple vinyl, two CD thing that really showed, along with Tracks, how prolific and, and impressive a songwriter Bruce Springsteen is or was, uh, even though you know a lot of this didn't see the light of day originally. Like he was putting out albums worth of stuff. If you go from his late seventies uh, recorded output, what was there in the studio, what was left on the cutting room floor, you could have made five whole albums altogether on top of what Darkness on the Edge of Town was. And the River was a double album too that came out two years later. So really, just a lot of stuff. And the Promise is fantastic. A lot of really great cuts that, you know, you get used to as just Springsteen staples if you're a big fan of his. And here's one of his uh, kind of oldie homages on it called The Little Things My Baby Does. 
was one of many songs on The Promise that didn't really fit into the whole working class, blue collar thing going on. Darkness on the Edge of Town, the theme that he was aiming for with that album. He uh, cut some tracks out of that, like Fire and Because of Night, and both became top 20 hits for our other artists. There was uh, the Pointer Sisters and Patti Smith. And so a lot of the more uh, lighthearted fare, a lot of the more party songs, the uh, poppier uh, slanted things got left out, but we got them on The Promise. So here's a little Things My Baby Does by Springsteen, recorded in 78. The way she kisses so Okay, there's a little things my baby does by Bruce Springsteen from back in 1978, but later released in 2010 on the excellent album The Promise, a compilation but kind of a studio album in the same sense in that it had never been really heard by the general public and a track that should be regarded as one of Springsteen's best as far as I'm concerned. But then again, you could make a greatest hits of about 50 songs and it wouldn't have enough when it comes to Bruce Springsteen as far as many are concerned, including yours truly. So let's move on. How about uh, when I brought up as an example earlier, the Beatles. They've got so many hits collections coming out the wazoo. Who knows? But this one's never on any of them, even though I think it's a rich, harmonically uh, advanced song. One that John Lennon tossed away in later interviews and said, ah, it's just a piece of garbage I wrote. It wasn't really anything good. Trite lyrics, whatever. But my goodness, the guitar sound on this thing, the overdubbing they put into it was just phenomenal. In 1966, you didn't get this kind of sound out of... Uh, electric guitar leads in the studio nobody was getting them except the Beatles because they had George Martin who was a wizard behind the uh, controls 
knew what he was doing after he did a lot of comedy records, I think, before uh, the Beatles were his assignment in 1963, or 62, rather. But anyway, this is off the sprawling breakthrough album Revolver in 1966. And it's uh, maybe one of the more peppy, uh, harmonic uh, kind of songs on the album, because it's got a lot of more Eastern influence and uh, darker uh, tracks than the Beatles had bestowed upon the public before. It's called And Your Bird Can Sing. And a lot of people think that title is sort of a uh, tribute to the Birds, who are one of the Beatles' favorite American groups to come around at that time period. And it does have that jangly sort of uh, folk rock bird sound to it. But anyway, let's take a listen to this one from 1966. It's the Beatles, And Your Bird Can Sing, on the Sound of Group Podcast. <laughs> Andrew Bird Can Sing by the Beatles. Never regarded it as a true great song of theirs, but I think it's one of the underrated gems that they've uh, that they ever did. And uh, once in a while, it'd be nice to see it regarded as such. <laughs> but anyhow, that's uh, not my call. It's up to the individual, and uh, that's why I'm putting it on this collection of great stuff on this particular sound and groove theme. Anyhow, <laughs> so let's move on again. Another track coming your way. It's from a guy who was an influence on the Beatles in their younger days, you might say. A big one. Especially Paul. Paul really liked him. This is Buddy Holly. It's an early cut for him, uh, from him around 1956. And it's a jaunty little thing called Blue Days, Black Nights. And it's one of his better sort of compositions early on. It's a fantastic sort of uh, whimsical country, rockabilly kind of thing. And uh, describing uh, how things are all bad, you know. It's like... He feels blue in the day, he feels black, you know, the darkness at night, all because of the lost girl. You know, that kind of usual yin-yang thing that goes on in pop music. And the uh, whole lost a girl kind of motif, very uh, frequently used in songs. But uh, it really shows the buddy already kind of knew what direction he was going in right at the start, uh, just around the you know, first year or so of his recording career. And there are some great tracks that come later, but Blue Days Black Nights never really gets put in there. But I think it should. I think there's... there's 
quite a few underrated Barty Holly songs, and this is one of them. And uh, you can find it on great compilations that are more expansive, like the Buddy Holly collection, which is about two discs, and that's where I first heard this one when I got that particular release. Anyway, let's uh, get to it now. This is from the mid-50s, 1956, to be precise. Buddy Holly, the great Buddy Holly, and the Crickets, I should mention, of course, there were those guys, and uh, <laughs> their song, Blue Days, Black Nights. So here it is on the Santa Cruz Podcast. Blue days, black nights, blue tears keep on falling for you, dear. Now you're gone. Blue days, black nights, my heart keeps on calling for you, dear. And you alone. Memories of you make me sorry. I gave you reason to doubt me, but now you're gone. And I am left here all alone with the blue memories I think of you Blue Days, Black Nights from Buddy Holly from 1956 there on the Sound and Groove podcast. Actually, this was the first single released by Buddy, backed with Love Me, when he was signed to Decca Records. Didn't make a dent on the charts anywhere. In fact, it didn't chart at all. Neither did his follow-up single, Modern Don Juan. But, at the beginning of 1957, That'll Be The Day came out and really struck uh, the oil, struck riches for him. And, uh, yeah, so you can find... Um, Blue Days on the Buddy Holly collection. It was also on his studio album, That'll Be the Day, in 1957. It was a holdover until it was eventually put on an LP. So, we're going to move on to another giant, a uh, contemporary of the Beatles, a guy who inspired them, uh, that being Bob Dylan, of course. You know, the whole <laughs> spokesperson for a generation, that old crap, you know, that obviously is not something that Dylan attached his name to, but it was just something that the media bandied about about him. Ooh, that's a tongue twister there, sorry. <laughs> so in 1974, Dylan's marriage was going through a rocky period. Uh, supposedly it wasn't brought on by any particular infidelities, but sort of just like Dylan and his wife couldn't relate anymore because Bob had been taking these painting classes from some particular master painter, and um, he uh, all of a sudden couldn't relate to things. He said in an interview later that like it changed the outlook so much that he didn't even know, think he had anything in common with his own wife anymore. And um, <clears throat> this sort of led to a bit of a rift. And in September 74, Dylan had these new songs that he brought to record in New York City. They're all very autobiographical, uh, personal. Everything he did on the acoustic guitar was in the key of open E. He, like, changed the open tuning of his guitar to that. 
And he was going to put out the album of all these recordings, but then uh, people, including his own brother David Zimmerman, told him, no, you know, it all sounds very similar. It's all samey, right? So why don't you try, you know, like mixing it up? So in December, uh, he went to Minneapolis and re-recorded five of the tracks, including this one, which may be the most, most sad kind of uh, melancholy song on the album in terms of lyrical material, that being, if you see her, say hello. And it's maybe one of the most tender, beautifully written songs in Dylan's catalog. Like, the lyrics are not all strange and poetic and metaphor-laden like a lot of Bob's other prime well-known works. They're straight and to the point, but they're, the poetry of them is fantastic. Like, Dylan really absorbed and understood his influences. And on this song, you can, you can tell this is about him writing about, you know, how if his wife moves on. They, they later did reunite, but they eventually divorced in 1978. But you can see in this song, the uh, whole separation angle inspired him to write a truly, truly uh, sincere song that's never on any collections, It's never really you know, played a lot. But it might be the most um, moving of the songs on Blood on the Tracks, the album that it was put on, which came out in uh, January of 75. Anyway, of all the great tracks on that album, which was sort of considered a comeback for Dylan, this, uh, I don't know, maybe it's in the top three. <laughs> It's hard to really judge. Anyway, here's If You See or Say Hello by Bob Dylan on the Sound Group Podcast. Oh, whatever makes her happy 
bitter taste still lingers on from the night I tried to make her stay. Okie doke uh, from a great mournful sort of song of separation and regret on one of the great albums ever made, really. Definitely one of the best in the 70s, Blood on the Tracks by Dylan. That's If You See Her, Say Hello. And from that we go to one of the most lush, romantic pop albums ever made and also considered one of the greatest ever made, 1966 Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, where Brian Wilson came into his own. And, of course, you know, this, this was sort of like the peak of his genius because of sort of, you know, drug and mental problems that were to follow. So, you know, this is uh, a track from that album that doesn't get put on any collections or raved about as much, but it's one of the many, many amazing songs in the album. It's called You Still Believe in Me. It's almost Christmas-like in that it has, you know, bells, and or sleigh bells anyway, and uh, a lot of uh, percussive instruments that evoke feelings of dashing through the snow. Anyway, but a really nice choral-type melody and of course, you know, the wonderful harmonies of the Beach Boys that Brian Wilson arranged. He pretty much recorded this whole album with the great uh, L.A. studio session people of the day, nicknamed the Wrecking Crew. And when the Beach Boys came off a tour, because by then he wasn't touring after a nervous breakdown in 1964 on the verge of doing a tour after Christmas, that's another story for another time, uh, he had it all ready to go for them to overdub their vocals on it. So they were like, wow, this is all here. It's all ready to go. And uh, this track is called You Still Believe in Me. Uh, Brian does most of the vocal work on it, like like all tracks pretty much on Pet Sounds, although he leaves God Only Knows to his brother Carl, which is you know considered the signature song of the album. Anyway, this is a song that should be considered among their best ofs, and that would be You Still Believe in Me by the Beach Boys from 1966. So, let's get right to it instead of me blabbing on and on and my cat meowing in the background. Here it is on the Sound and Groove podcast. <laughs>
There we go, as You Still Believe in Me by the Beach Boys. That wonderful intro with the uh, piano string sounding so ethereal and kind of like a harpsichord, but it's actually because Tony Asher, who was uh, the guy who collaborated with Brian Wilson on this album by writing the lyrics, he plucked the strings with a bobby pin while Brian held down the keys. So, isn't that cool? On the piano, that is. He plucked the strings with a bobby pin. And, of course, the song has a... I don't know if that part was in there, but you'll hear a bicycle ring and a, and a horn as well to evoke childhood memories. Because originally this song was called My Childhood and had different lyrics written by Asher. But that didn't happen. And they <laughs> when they eventually decided to do different lyrics uh, for the song, when it was sung by the Beach Boys, when they overdubbed the vocals, they couldn't really get that out of the mix because it was, it was just up there. For some reason, they couldn't erase it. It was produced in mono because a lot of what Brian produced was mono. He didn't use stereo. And he attributed this to being deaf in one ear, which... Came from the supposed time when his uh, rather um, abusive piece of work father, Murray, hit him in the head or in the ear with a 2 by 4 when he was younger, supposedly. And that's the story, and uh, I wouldn't put anything past it because Murray really wasn't uh, the greatest dad in the world. Yeah. Well, we're going to move on to another song that's uh, uh, a Stone Cold classic that never really gets put on any of those compilations or played a ton. And that's the Rain Song by Led Zeppelin. This comes from their 1973 album, Houses of the Holy. Now, the first few Zeppelin albums had really done huge numbers. Like, at the time, they were, like, one of the higher-selling rock bands that had ever been seen. They capitalized on that market that had sprung up in the 60s. I don't think Led Zeppelin 3 really topped the sales of the first two, but definitely Led Zeppelin 4, with tons of FM classic rock radio staples to come, uh, in the years to come. Uh, That one was a multi-platinum, ginormous success. So, of course, to follow this up... They didn't do too badly. I mean, they may not have hit the highs of Led Zepp 4, but the finally named album, where they, you know, didn't use their band title, just label it, like, in parts, Houses of the Holy came out in 1973. And uh, the Rain Song is kind of a languid, sort of lazy day type of tune, but it's pretty it's pretty amazing mood music. And apparently it was written in response to the fact George Harrison had told uh, John Bonham that you know, the problem with you guys, you don't really write any ballads, you know? What's that about? And so, Jimmy Page said, well, I'll write him a ballad, you know, and compose this track, being the master acoustic guitar player that he was, an underratedly fantastic acoustic guitarist, but everybody thinks of him for his leads and his crunchy power chords and all that stuff. And uh, this song even uses the opening chords from something itself, you know, and he quotes it a little. But anyway, I'll let you listen. Here's a rain song by Led Zeppelin on the Sound of Group podcast. Hello 
There we have the rain song from Led Zeppelin, the final track in this first part of the two-part theme to come here, the fifth, fourth and fifth episodes of 2016. I decided this deserved more than one theme, that being the one of should have been on the best ofs, I guess we'll say. And that's a fantastic ballad that Led Zeppelin put together with a lot of great parts. Everybody sort of, you know, it's really more mellow than a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff. Great vocal performance from Robert Plant. He rated it as one of his highest in the band. Pretty good arrangement. You got a lot of the various guitar parts that uh, Page constructed for it. John Paul Jones, owing to his very uh, keen classical background, contributes Mellotron, which is that keyboard instrument that uh, kind of predates the synthesizer, where it had tape sounds in it, and you could play them out through like a normal keyboard uh, instrument, so you could put like strings or clarinet or flute or any kind of noise on there, it would come out sounding that way. And usually it was to simulate the sound of an orchestra if you couldn't hire one, if you couldn't afford to. I'm sure Zeppelin could have, but you know, it could have been a lot of, you know, manpower and all those other things. I just wanted to get it done quickly. Anyhow, uh, that's a wrap for this episode, but I'll be back with something shortly for you, perhaps next month, uh, and it will follow up this particular themed episode. Until then, I bid you all adieu and good listening. Until the next time, see you later.